Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to open up your Bibles this evening to Philippians. We're going to be taking a look at Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2. We are beginning the book of Philippians. Today will be more of an introduction to that particular book than anything else. I will attempt to talk about the author, the themes, the aim of the epistle, the things that we can learn from it without spoiling too much of the content so that uh, later on as we preach on individual portions, it becomes anticlimax after anticlimax. I don't want to give away the entire book, but I do want you to have an idea of where it came from, why it is so very important to us today, what we can learn from it, and to see the similarities that exist between this book and indeed our own time. Uh, As I'll be discussing in the sermon, Philippi was actually a military colony. And you may have noticed we live in a military colony for the most part. Uh, So the uh, resemblances between us and the Philippians, apart from the fact that we have microwaves and cell phones and things like that, and they did not, are very strong. They are still the same kind of people who deal with the same kind of difficulties. They, too, had a state which was sometimes nice to them and sometimes uh, which oppressed them very badly. Uh, They also dealt with the problems of relationships and all of the things that the fall has brought in. So as we look at Philippians and we hear Paul writing to this beloved congregation of his, let us seek to apply it to our own time. But before we come to the word of God, let us go to the God who has given us this word and let's ask him to bless it. Please join me. Well, sovereign Lord, we do pray now that you would be the illuminator of our minds, that you would help us to understand your word. I pray that you would help me to divide it aright, that you would give me liberty and power and unction as I do so, that, O Lord, I would not say anything that goes against your word. I know I am a man with feet of clay. I am capable of interpreting the word wrong, but I pray, Lord, that you would prevent me from doing so. I do pray also, O Lord, that you would uh, give me the, the sustaining power to to uh, go through this book aright and to apply it to your people. May you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive all that you have to tell us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. Philippians chapter 1, and I'll be reading verses 1 and 2. This is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I wonder if, say, 10 or 11 years from now, if I was in jail in Washington uh, for my preaching of the gospel and possibly facing the federal death penalty, and this congregation had sent me a gift in jail uh, to help me along, and I was writing a letter in reply to your generous gift what would that letter sound like? What would I say? How would I come across in writing to you? Would it be complaining about the government and my situation? Would I be going on and on about the unfairness of it all and uh, speaking about how my liberties had been infringed? Or would I be writing to you to know a little about how I was doing and then spend the vast majority not talking about myself and my own situation as dire as it was, but to spend the vast majority of my letter attempting to stir you up to to joy and uh, in the Lord to encourage you 
to be full of peace and grace and joy, even in the midst of adversity? Would I think so little of myself that my letter would seek to lovingly correct problems of disunity that I knew about in the congregation? Would I push back against those who perhaps were on the fringes or in the congregation itself who were teaching bad doctrine in the community? And above all, would I urge you to keep the person and power of the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of everything you did. I hope that I would. I hope I would not send you a letter merely of whining or a simple thank you note that said very little. In my case, though, we're going to have to find out. Uh, But in the case of Paul and the Philippian Christians, we already know how he spoke in the midst of those circumstances because that is the letter that we have in front of us. Paul is in the midst of serious adversity, serious difficulty. He is struggling, we know, with loneliness, with persecution, and he writes a letter to his much-beloved Philippians that is full of joy and encouragement in spite of all of those difficulties that stood against him in the world. So much, uh, so uh, this, this letter is so full of, of joy that it has been often called the epistle of joy. Paul, writing from jail, remember, and a Roman jail was not like the jails today. We speak uh, today of jails as being three hots in a cot. You have TV, recreation yards, things like that. In Paul's day, that was not the case. You either had to pay for a place to stay if the charges weren't that serious yourself, or if you were thrown into a Roman dungeon you could often die of exposure. You went in with the clothes on your back, and if your friends and your family did not provide you with the things that you needed, including food in jail, you could die very, very easily while awaiting your trial. But Paul, writing from that kind of jail, he uses the Greek words for joy and rejoice, imploring the Philippian saints to rejoice. He uses those words kara and kairo more than a dozen times, and this is just a four-chapter letter, remember. So joy is one of the most prominent themes in what he is writing. He is, as I said, in a Roman jail. Uh, This is possibly the the second time. I think it's probably the first time that he was there. He is waiting a trial on a capital charge of treason, and the people who will judge him are members of Emperor Nero's brutal and corrupt administration. And as we know, Paul was not somebody who was going to give them a bribe, so there's no way out of his imprisonment that way. And yet, as we shall see, Paul is able, he's able to look well beyond the circumstances that surround him. And he's able to actually see Christ in heaven and the work that Christ is doing in the world and indeed in Philippi and throughout the church and to know that God throughout is in control and that all of God's promises are coming to pass. Let me just stop and ask that question right now of you. Do you know those things as well? Do you have that solid trust no matter what your circumstances are in the Lord Jesus Christ, that no matter what afflictions, adversities, difficulties, diseases you're dealing with today, yet still you know that the Lord is in control and that his will is coming to pass and that none of his promises will ever fail. I pray that that is the case. And if not, I pray that you will take, uh, you will take encouragement from Paul. He was writing to encourage the Philippians, but we remember that he wasn't writing just to the Philippian congregation. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing to us as well. And so I pray that he would be encouraging you in whatever situation you are in. But we see him 
trusting absolutely in God, trusting in the Christ whom he knew, and that therefore there was this inner principle of joy in his heart, an inner principle that no one could take away, and that he still wants to share with others. He wants that joy inexpressible that we heard about this morning to to overflow to others. The Romans might take his life. They, They could do that, but they cannot take away his joy or his peace. That is one of the great promises that is given to the Christian. Nobody can take away the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Nobody can take away your salvation, and nobody can steal your joy and your peace in those things. But let's take a moment now to discuss how all of this came to pass, how he came to be writing this letter uh, from jail. Where is Philippi? What was it like? Who were the Philippians? And how did Paul come to know them? Incidentally, this is a picture of the uh, the Philippian ruins uh, that you will find in Macedonia. I am told they are amazing. Uh, It is a UNESCO historic site. Uh, maybe one day, uh, as I got to see Ephesus, I will also have a chance to see Philippi. But in the meantime, let's talk about the, uh, the city. Philippi was originally founded as a colony in northeastern Macedonia by colonists from the island of Thanos. Uh, they were called Thacians in 359 BC. But it was captured by Alexander the Great's father, Philip, and renamed Philippi. Uh, three years later, so it didn't have much of a uh, a long run of independence. But in saying that, I've told you very little about Philippi itself, because uh, the Philippi that Paul knew uh, came along much later on. Uh, It's like me telling you uh, that Fayetteville was settled by colonists from Scotland, um, because almost 400 years had passed between the founding of Philippi and the time that Paul was writing, just as almost 400 years have passed between the time of the founding of Fayetteville and our own time. So uh, the Philippi that Paul first visited in around 51 or 52 AD was a very different place. The Romans had captured it uh, from the Macedonians in 168 BC. And in 42 BC, during the Roman Civil War that brought an end to the Roman Republic, it was the scene of the final defeat of the forces of Brutus and Cassius uh, by the forces of Anthony and Octavian, uh, who later, of course, became Augustus Caesar. And that final battle occurred just outside of this city. This was critical because after the city, Octavian turned Philippi into a Roman colony and a military outpost. Uh, They released some of their veteran soldiers, the war uh, to um, defeat the the men who had stabbed Caesar uh, had finished as far as they were concerned. And they released some of their legionaries from Legion 28 to colonize the city, which was founded uh, founded as, and I apologize for my terrible Latin here, Colonia Victrix Philippensium, meaning the colony of the Vitri of, of Philippi. Uh, From that point onwards, it was a place where Italian veterans from the Roman army were given land. And it sat upon an important Roman road called the Via Ignatia, which was a road that was constructed by the Romans in the second century BC. Incidentally, uh, I learned while we were on our trip that the, uh, the Greeks joke uh, particularly in Cyprus, that the only roads in Greece that last were built by the Romans. The modern ones all fall apart. Um, it crossed through Illyricum, Macedonia, Thracia, and, and runs into the territory that uh, is now part of Albania, North Macedonia, Greece, and European Turkey. Why is that important? Well, it's important because it meant that Philippi was a center not only of trade, 
uh, and they had mines we'll talk about in a little while where they mined gold and silver, but it was a place where it was possible to go from Philippi to other areas of Macedonia or to turn south and to go into Greece. They had their own Route 95, so to speak, running right through the city that allowed them to have uh, concourse with all the, the people in Greece and up in Macedonia and into the Roman Empire. This meant that the Lord, in founding his church there, put it in a place where the inhabitants could, as they did their daily trade, carry not only letters to Rome, but they could also carry the gospel to the surrounding areas. Now, the citizens of this colony were regarded as citizens of Rome, and they were given a number of special privileges that ordinary inhabitants of the empire didn't have. It was, in many senses, a miniature Rome, literally, because they were under the uh, sorry, municipal law of Rome. It was as though they were a colony that was in Italy, actually attached to Rome. That was the way the law uh, functioned. And they were governed by two military officers, the Duumviri, who were appointed directly from Rome, and the colony itself, although it was relatively small, it was only about 10,000 people when Paul reached it, uh, it was very wealthy as a general rule. They had gold and silver mines just outside the city, and those mines were still productive in Paul's day. It was, as I said, a little Rome in the midst of Macedonia, and not just in the government. It was laid out like a Roman city. Um, and so, uh, to this day, you can see that they have a Roman forum in addition to a Greek agora. But how did Paul get to this city? How did he get there? Well, let's read a little from Acts 16, which actually tells us. So if you would turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 16. And I want to begin with verse 1, which will tell us... Uh, that Paul was actually, when this all started, he was in Asia Minor. He was over in modern-day Turkey on his second missionary journey. We read, Then he came to Derbe in Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, many people have speculated, just as an aside, that this is Paul, or not, sorry, this is Luke who was speaking to Paul in a vision. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made, and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. 
the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And we know that Paul and Timothy stayed uh, with Lydia for some days. Uh, They had uh, some other encounters. I'm not going to uh, read the rest of chapter 16, but I would encourage you to actually read all of chapter 16 tonight. It won't take you that long. Uh, But you'll read about the exorcism of the demon-possessed slave girl, which unfortunately got them into trouble because uh, the, the demon allowed her, unfortunately, to know about things that men didn't know about. And so her owners used to get money from her that way. We'll also tell you about Paul and Silas's unjust imprisonment. And then the household baptism of the Philippian jailer, which is uh, marvelous. And of course, uh, one of those uh, household baptisms that shows us that we are to be baptizing not just parents uh, on their confession of faith, but also their children. This was the first church established in Europe. Note that. Uh, And that at the explicit direction of the Holy Spirit, who made it very clear that Paul was to turn the direction of his labors from Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, to Europe. He goes through Macedonia, and then after that, he goes into Greece and brings the gospel into Europe. Now, the bond, as you will read through the Philippi, you can't help but notice the friendship, the love that exists between Paul and this congregation. It was peculiarly close. Um, Though others had abandoned him in his imprisonment, as we shall see, these Philippians had not. They continued to pray for him, and they continued to provide for his needs in this world. They sent him a gift. Uh, As I said, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but they had sent a man by the name of Epaphroditus uh, with a gift for him in jail. And then he had sent Epaphroditus back to them with this letter. That's how he got it. And as I mentioned, this letter uh, was written from Rome during his imprisonment. Uh, The beginning of that is uh, related in Acts 28. The reference to Caesar's household, which you will read in Philippians 4.22, and the palace in Philippians 1.13. In the Greek, it's praetorium. It was probably the barrack of the praetorium guard attached to the palace of Nero. And that confirms this. So um, I I tend to think it was during his first imprisonment at at Rome. That would uh, tend to to sit with the mention of the Praetorium uh, and that he was in the custody of the Praetorian prefect. uh, And his situation agrees with the situation in the first two years of his imprisonment that you can read about in Acts, in Acts 28, 30, and 31. It's not that important whether it was the first or the second imprisonment. The fact is he's in prison. He's in prison for his faith. He's in prison for his preaching. But he does not allow that to destroy him or even to to drive him down or to change the nature of his ministry. Many people might have switched over perhaps to a martyr's ministry at this point in time, and yet he does not. He continues to encourage the people to go about their, their business preaching the gospel and being members of the church no matter what the circumstances are. Now, the tone of this letter, as we go through it, you'll notice this. It's unlike most of his other letters. Uh, it contains no long doctrinal discussions. It contains no rebukes of evils that were festering in the particular church. Uh, but it is an outpouring, rather, of happy love and also confidence in these brothers and sisters. He loves them, he is confident in them, and he wants them to be confident, not in themselves. He wants them to be confident in Christ and in his promises. Like all of Paul's epistles, as you saw, it starts with a a, a salutation. Our letters, of course, end with the identification of the person who's sending it. Um, But the letters back there started with uh, who this letter was from. 
And like most of his letters, it also starts with a prayer for the people that he is writing to. He isn't just intending to give them information. He wants to bless them, to bless them with uh, his letter and to bless them with his prayer. Uh, And one uh, commentator calls the entire letter a long gush of love towards the Philippians. Um, And it is. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Verses 1 and 2 that we read there, they contain an apostolic greeting. Um, The senders are identified there. Timothy is associated with with Paul. Uh, Timothy was with Paul, therefore, in his imprisonment. We remember from 2 Timothy in his second imprisonment that uh, Paul noted that only Timothy had stayed with him. Uh, or rather that uh, he wanted Timothy to come to him in his imprisonment to bring things to him. Timothy remained loyal to Paul no matter what. Timothy also, you remember, was going to become very important to Paul in the Ephesian church in uh, building them up and and so on. Uh, Timothy was a a genuine... he was more than just an amanuensis or a secretary for Paul. He was a helper to Paul. He was a, a brother in Christ, somebody who would stand with him in thick or thin. Now, Paul mentions him, uh, and he uh, often does that. He brings the friends who are about him into prominence. That also indicates that the people in Philippi knew of him and would be interested to hear how he was doing. Timothy is in uh, Rome with Paul when the letter is being dictated, and um, although Timothy is not the one who is inspired to write the letter. Paul is using him as his secretary to take it down. It's very possible that Paul had an eye disease, which made made it very difficult for him to write. Uh, He calls Timothy and himself, he addresses himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a nice little word, bondservant. it, it, it conjures up the idea of indentured uh, bondage, the idea that we're just working off a debt. But when he says bondservant, he's actually using the Greek word doulos. Doulos means literally slave. He is a slave of Christ. Uh, some prefer the translation bondservant to kind of neaten it up. We don't like the idea of Paul calling himself a slave of Christ because of the bad connotations of that. But we remember that most of the Roman Empire, in fact, 20% of the city there, um, and this would have had uh, as a Roman colony, a military colony, Philippi would have had a lower than normal slave population, more free men than slaves. But they still speculate that at least 20% of those 10,000 people within the colony were slaves. And here is Paul saying, I too am a slave. But who is he a slave of? He's a slave of Jesus Christ. He and Timothy are slaves. And they aren't uh, complaining about that. They understood that they were bought with a price by the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrifice for their sake. And therefore they were owned by their master. They are completely dependent upon him and they give him their undivided allegiance. They love this master of theirs, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul clearly, he views it as the highest honor that we can attain to, to serve Christ, to have his light yoke upon us instead of the heavy chains of sin, which he takes away. And he is bound to absolute submission to this Lord who is all worthy and who gave everything for his sake. Paul, note in all of his letters, never forgot what Christ had done for him. Never forgot where he was when Christ found him. How he was an enemy of the church, a persecutor of the church. Somebody whom Christ, you remember, addressed on the road to Damascus saying, Paul, Paul, or rather at that time, Saul, Saul. 
Why are you persecuting me? Jesus associates himself so keenly with his people that to persecute them is to persecute him. I was thinking about that as we were hearing about how the Pakistanis are wretchedly persecuted. What their persecutors in Pakistan, the Muslims, do not recognize or realize is that in persecuting them, they are persecuting God the Son. And it will not go well for them to be uh, counted amongst the persecutors on the last day. But he had once been a persecutor. Now he is no longer. He is a slave, a willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who loves him with all of his heart. Now note also at the beginning, he doesn't mention that he's an apostle. Uh, And so there's a great contrast here between letters like Galatians where he asserts his apostolic authority when he's teaching them. This is a very friendly letter. He doesn't actually need to. He knows they know that he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus greets all of the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And he views them, and he calls them saints. And what is he talking about there when he calls them saints? Hagioi, literally, holy ones. These are people who he considers as they are in Christ. Have you ever thought about this? We may think of ourselves as wretches. We may think of ourselves as people uh, in whom there is nothing worthy of praise. And yet, the way that the Lord looks at us is his holy ones, his ones who are set apart, his chosen ones, who are even now being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ, that is who you are. You are one of his special people. In the Old Testament, the word was segula, his special treasure. Brothers and sisters, the devil wants us to think of ourselves as only what we can accomplish by our meager efforts. And let's face it, that's not much. Isaiah, at the end of his long, uh, his long um, prophetic letter in Isaiah 66, he talks about righteousness, the righteousness that a holy man like himself might be able to accomplish by himself. And he says these things, our righteousnesses are but filthy rags. But Christ, what does he do? He endows us with robes of righteousness. He enrobes us, as Luther put it so very well, so that when we stand before God on the last day, the saints are seen as they are in Christ. That is who Paul sees them as. They are a people who are called to be holy and who are being made holy. We have been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are also, and this will come out from this letter, we are also being conformed to the image of Christ. It is, as that example that was given to us a little while ago, uh, of the, uh, as we were going through the, the Bible study of the, uh, the princess who had been made, or rather the, uh, the commoner who had been made into the queen. She was given the title, but then gradually she was taught the courtly graces and made into somebody who everybody understood and saw was the, uh, the wife of the king. They are the people of God. They are the saints of Christ, and that because of their union with the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the saints together in their communal sense are being addressed by Paul. This letter would have been probably read just as we read it in the midst of worship and so on, and then copied and passed on to the other congregations, the other saints throughout the world. There is something also that we note. He doesn't just address the people in the congregation. He also addresses the officers within the congregation with the bishops and the deacons. Now, 
I, with a, with a number of other people, I, I love the NKJV, but the KJV comes to us from, as you know, uh, it came to us from uh, King James. King James was not a big fan of Presbyterianism. He was uh, rather, even though he'd been raised in Scotland, he was an Episcopalian, and he was somebody who believed no bishop, no king, and he wanted desperately to enforce this hierarchical church structure that developed after the apostolic age of bishops, archbishops, and then all the way up to the Bishop of Rome eventually who styled himself the Pope. And so uh, we have that word there, bishops. The actual word is episcopoi. It means one who watches over. It's actually a word for a presbyter, a word for an elder. So who were the ordinary officers in the congregations in Philippi at this point in time? And the answer is elders and deacons men who had been set apart. We remember that uh, in uh, the year 52, on his second missionary journey, a little while later, uh, he wrote to the Thessalonians, now we request you, brothers, to appreciate those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Uh, between AD 44 and 50, already in his first missionary journey, Paul is appointing elders in every church. Elders, and this is something that we don't understand in the modern world, elders are necessary for the government of the church, for the well-being of the church. God appointed them. Just as in the family, believe it or not, we do need parents. We need fathers and mothers. And fortunately, within the government, we do need civil magistrates as well, overseers, ones who watch over us. The question is, will they be good or bad? We need them, but will they be good overseers? Will they be good shepherds who follow the great good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he seems to indicate that they had, by his warm greeting, these, these good elders who were watching over them and these good deacons who were serving their needs. So as I said, this is a letter that was written to them. What does he want to convey to them? He wants to exhort them to a lifestyle that is in keeping with their calling. They are saints, so live like saints. Live in unity. Live in holiness. Live in joy. I have said Often, if you are a joyless Christian, you're doing it wrong. There is something that is profoundly out of whack. If your predominating emotion when it comes to Christianity is one of drudgery, one of, well, we got to get through this, time to go to church. Steal yourselves, kids, and be quiet. And then we worship the Lord and we go home and perhaps we feel a little relief, but then we know that worship's coming. That is not the Christian way. Brothers and sisters, it should be something that delights you to come to church, to, to be in communion with your brothers and sisters. I went over to Uganda. I loved the fact that these were my brothers and sisters in Christ, even though I, did, I met several of them for the second time, and I had that, that wonderful friendship with them, uh, meeting them again and working amongst them. But I wanted to get back here. I wanted to get back to the congregation of the saints. I longed to be amongst you. I wanted once again to be able to teach from God's word, but, but just to experience the fellowship of the saints that I count and prize so highly. It was so important to me. The idea that I would be thrown in jail and never be able to see my brothers and sisters again in Christ would, would be very hard. And then the only thing that would sustain me is the fact that the fellowship that I have with the saints may be interrupted here on earth, but my fellowship with Christ cannot be interrupted. There is no hole so deep, there is no height so high that Christ is not there for his people. There is no place where he is further from you 
than a prayer, no matter where you are. And we know also that while our fellowship with saints can be interrupted by imprisonment or death, it's always with us, see you later. We're looking forward to that day when our communion will have no end. Paul is writing to a people, and this is why I want you to understand this. He sees them as they will be, saints perfected in godliness, dwelling amongst the souls of just men made perfect. But he also sees them as they will be with him, worshiping the Lord eternally. Do you see your brothers and sisters that way? Do you think of these people who you are amongst as people you will spend eternity with, worshiping with joy in your hearts, casting your crowns before the Lord and praising him with hosannas eternally? Is that who you see to your left and to your right? I hope it is. Do you know, it, it, it always... <laughs> It, it, it's kind of amusing to me when people who are Christians, and you know, yeah, they'll acknowledge they're Christians, unfriend one another on Facebook or block one another on Facebook. Do you really expect you're going to get to heaven and not be able to see them? Oh, I, I, I blocked him. You can see him. I can't. You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's absurd. And one of the things that Paul is going to emphasize is there was no blocking in the Philippian congregation. Oh, yeah, those two women, they're arguing, so they blocked each other. No, what do they do? What are they urged to do? They're urged to reconcile. That's one of the themes that we're going to see coming out of this. It's something that I'm, I'm spoiling later sermons, admittedly, but you need to be willing to be reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you have a problem? Do you have a grudge? Is there some bitterness that has grown up between you? It does happen because, as Elder King reminded us, on this side of glory, we are sinners. But then be reconciled to them. Do everything that you possibly can to be reconciled. Don't allow that grudge to go on. That's one of the things that he is going to emphasize for them. He's also going to continually be pressing them to Christ. And he's going to be saying, this, brothers and sisters, is your source of joy, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is one thing to have joy from time to time here in America. I mean, we, we enjoy so much leisure. We have so many amenities, so much. And I, you go to Uganda, you go to East Africa, and Uganda is not the poorest of, of all the nations out there, but in the morning you see children and women literally balancing jerry cans on their heads. They're walking with all of the day's water that they're going to be using. They don't have amenities. They have to work all day in order to have food to eat. If they're going to have meat, it's because they raised a goat and then they killed it. And then you eat it. Sometimes when you go to restaurants in Uganda, you can actually see that process going on. I was just imagining, what would Americans in, say, Seattle or Portland think of if they actually saw the chicken they just ordered being killed in the yard to their right? You know? it's, it's a reminder. I was like, you know, but that's, that's the truth. We have this artificial creation that's supposed to give us joy and so on, but not a lasting joy. In Uganda, if you have joy in the Lord, you have joy in the Lord. There's nothing else to replace it, except maybe Premier League soccer if your friend's got a satellite. But that, that passes very quickly, especially when your team loses. Brothers and sisters, the joy that we have is a joy unspeakable, a joy that can't be taken away, a joy that goes on into eternity. It's not a joy because certain things are arranged, the feng shui of our life is in the right you know, position at that moment in time. It's a joy that even when we are suffering persecution for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, we still have. 
the joy of those Pakistani Christians that we heard about, that woman who had introduced so many Christians or Muslims to Christ. Or what was her name? Esther John. I, hadn't, I never had heard of her. I thought I knew my martyrs, but apparently I've got some holes I need to, uh, to make up for. But this was a woman who, up until the day that she died, had joy in Christ, the one whom she loved so much they thought she was having an affair with somebody named Jesus. What a testimony. That's who Paul is talking to. That's what he's talking about. I pray that you will have that kind of joy in the Lord. I could go on about some of the other themes in Philippians. I'd rather address them when we get to them. But this one great theme that resounds from the entire letter is the joy of the Lord. I hope that's something that you have, or if you don't have, you want. Why do I not have this joy? Could it be because you do not know the Lord who is being spoken of? You may be acquainted with things about the Lord. There are many people who are in the church who know things about Jesus without knowing Jesus, without having that relationship, a relationship that's closer even than the relationship between husband and wife, a relationship that is indissoluble, a relationship that goes on forever. He is, brothers and sisters, and note this, he is concerned with your joy. He wants you to be a happy people, not an artificially happy people. He doesn't want you to be a happy people because the praise band is tuned up and the drummer has been released from his cage and man, we are really going at it. And then we, we go home and oh, I don't have that joy of worship any longer. He wants you to have genuine joy because he is in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And that no matter what happens, you know where you're going. You know what he's done for you. And you have that joy also in imparting that gift to other people. The Christian faith is the greatest gift that anybody has ever received. But the wonderful thing about this gift is it's a gift that grows by the giving away of it. It should be something that we desire to see. And he'll talk to the Philippians about that. But I pray this is a joy that you know. I pray it's a joy that's growing in you. A joy that you foster by the means of grace. But if not... Don't forsake joy. Don't turn away from it. Be someone who is seeking after Christ. Pray. Pray with all earnestness. Lord Jesus, I want to know you in the joy that only you can bring. And know that if you do have an answer to that prayer, it is because he has worked already in your heart. If you're praying that way, in sincerity, it's because the Lord has done that marvelous work of changing you. Let's go then before the Lord who gives us joy unspeakable. Lord, thank you so much for your servant Paul and your servant Timothy. These men who wrote down these words for us, words given to them by the Holy Spirit, and who, O oh Lord, were used by you in that wonderful mission of spreading the gospel of peace and joy and contentment and reconciliation above all with our Father in heaven. Lord, we thank you for the peace that we can have not just with, a, with you, O oh Father, but with one another. And we pray, Lord, that we would seek after reconciliation. Help us constantly to be desiring to have joy in the fellowship of the saints. Now, Lord, as we come to the table and we are reminded of the, the cost of our joy, remind us that everything that was done by Jesus was done once for all. There is no re-sacrificing of Christ on a regular basis we come and we receive the benefits of his once-for-all sacrifice freely given to us 
because of your grace and your mercy. And we pray this in